I want you to know I really have wrestled over this passage. It's a, it's a, there's a lot here. And I did not do myself any favors when I tried to take all of this section at, at one go. But I'm going to do my best, okay? Okay. So as I was preparing this message, I thought about the movie, The Darkest Hour. Have any of y'all seen the 2017 film about Winston Churchill? He's the newly elected prime minister, and Great Britain stands on the precipice of war with Hitler and the Nazis, or trying to maintain this increasingly fragile peace. And so the story kind of follows Churchill as he debates and wrestles within himself over the choice to put the empire at risk and go to war or to continue the policy of Neville Chamberlain and try to placate Hitler and and keep the peace. It's a powerful movie, uh, super inspirational. My family was out of town one night and I'd heard lots of good things about it, so I sat down to watch it and I started crying like halfway through and didn't stop until the end, okay? And the ending scene is just amazing. There's this scene of him on the underground where he's asking people uh, what they think about the war, but the, really the climactic scene is Churchill in the Houses of Parliament giving this speech. And the speech climaxes in this way. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. You may not be a history buff. You may not care about World War II or Winston Churchill But you hear that man deliver that speech, and I'm telling you, you're going to be gripped and moved. You're going to be inspired. You're going to be ready to get up and take on whatever it is that lies in your way. Just look it up on YouTube and watch it before your morning workout and really get going. I'm ready to take the day. And yet, as inspired as I was when I watched that movie, and as fired up as I get about the kind of courage that Churchill instills by this speech. When I look at my own life, can I be honest with you? I am far away from that kind of confidence, courage. I mean, can you imagine what it must have been like to be the leader of a nation looking across a narrow channel to occupied France and thinking that you're next? The Battle of Britain lay before them where they're gonna drop bombs on London and burn it to the ground. What would it have felt like to be in that dark hour? and try to look at the nation with a plan. What are we gonna do? I can't even wrap my mind around it. I struggle with the minor and mundane things of my life. And then you see Jesus in dark Gethsemane staring into the abyss, the cross, the wrath of God poured out on him for sinners. And your mind just kind of dissolves. How how would anyone ever 
get beyond that. I mean, our trials and the struggles we face are incredibly minor when we compare them to the great conflicts of world history or to Jesus' conflict in the garden. And we struggle with those. You know, and that's what this passage is all about. It shows us the stark contrast between the faithfulness of Jesus and the abject failure that is our lives. And so this morning, I want to work our way through this passage, and I really want to prove to you two things. One, I want to prove to you that your flesh is weak. I think that'll be the easier case. You know how weak your flesh is, right? Because your flesh is weak, every time that your faith is tested, you fail. You find yourself failing over and over and over when tests come your way. And every time you face temptation, you falter. You give way underneath it. Your flesh is incredibly weak. But Jesus in this passage shows us there is hope that we're not doomed to defeat. If we'll stay wide awake to the spiritual reality around us and if we'll learn to watch in prayer, we can face the darkest hour, life's toughest trials, and remain faithful. So let's do that. Let's work our way through this passage, and y'all can tell me if I've convinced you or if I still have work to do, okay? I'm telling you, this is a hard passage, so I'm going to try my best. As we've worked our way through this section of Mark's gospel, starting in Mark chapter 10, uh, we've really seen the highs and lows of Jesus' public ministry. If you weren't with us, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus walks in on the back of a donkey to the holy city of Jerusalem to the shouts of praise from pilgrims on the road. They say, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. I mean, it's a party on Sunday. And then on Monday and Tuesday, we see the depths of Jesus' conflict with the religious authorities. And he shows up as the Lord of the temple to assess the temple's ministry and finds that there's nothing good there. And so he casts his judgment on it. On Tuesday, the religious leaders come to him and challenge his authority. On whose authority are you doing these things? On Wednesday, though, things are looking up. An unnamed woman shows up in the house of Simon and breaks her alabaster jar over his feet and anoints him, pouring out her costly perfume as an act of worship. And then on Thursday, we're back down again. Where at the Passover meal, he tells his disciples that one of them is going to betray him. And just when you think it couldn't get any worse, he leaves the city's precincts and heads outside the walls to the western hill of the Mount of Olives, and he breaks the bad news. Not only will one of them betray him, they're all going to desert him. That's what he tells them there in verse 27. You will all fall away. You will all fall away. Before we get into this, I just want to think with you a second about what Jesus tells the disciples later in verse 38 when he says, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. See, I think the only way to understand how these men who'd spent three years with Jesus, observing his interactions with other people and absorbing his teaching, trying their best to wrap their minds around the gospel of the kingdom, how could they come to desert him? I think verse 38 is the only explanation. Their flesh is weak. 
And after three years of traveling with Jesus, they knew enough about him to want to obey him and to remain faithful to him. But something within them kept them from it. And according to Jesus, that something is their flesh. Now, biblically speaking, the flesh is the sinful nature that you and I are born with. The Bible says we inherit it from our first parents, Adam and Eve, who rebelled against God and lost the original innocence and righteousness that they had before God in the Garden of Eden. They lost that, and they transmit to us a fallen nature. The scholar Gordon Fee says that our flesh is our fallen creatureliness as utterly hostile to God in every imaginable way. That's the flesh. That's who you and I are apart from Christ. We are born rebels to the authority of God. And everything about us, our thoughts, our bodily desires, our mouths, everything about us is alien to God. We are at enmity with him, rebels and sinners. It is the dynamic principle of sinfulness that's at work within us. And so what happens is you and I, born with a sinful nature, totally opposed to God, eventually grow up to be, I don't know, 11 or 12, or, or I would argue in the case of some of us, younger. And that fallen nature takes root in us, and we add to that original sin of our parents with all kinds of sins of our own. And it's not hard to see. We see it in ourselves. We see it in our children and our grandchildren. That unless something happens to them, they will live their life apart from God. The good news is that when we place our faith in Jesus and commit ourselves to following him, that fallen human nature is restored, renewed. We're regenerated, reborn after the image of Christ. So Paul could say, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God takes your fleshly nature and replaces it with his Holy Spirit that desires to please him, to honor him. And yet, though our natures are changed, are y'all with me? You, you know what I'm talking about. This is not a theoretical, abstract concept of the sinful flesh, right? You understand that, that element within you that's still at work. And you live in a broken and fallen world. And so every day you are surrounded by people who live according to the flesh. And unless you remain vigilant, the person you used to be starts showing up again. And the reason that is, is because our bodies and our, our souls are habituated into a way of life that's foreign to the things of God. And so even as we are following Jesus, we slip into old habits and old mindsets and end up living a life that looks nothing like the one that Jesus has called us to live. Paul talks about this in the book of Galatians. He says, I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you don't do the things that you please. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh 
with its passion and desires. Listen, before we can even work our way through this passage, I need you to understand something. That if you do not remain vigilant against the flesh, against that inner dynamic that's at work in you, you will find yourself slipping in to the works of the flesh. You must remain vigilant or else you'll end up just like these disciples. See, because of the weakness of our flesh, when our faith is tested, we fail. That's what happens. They've spent three years with Jesus, but here he tells them, you will all fall away because it's written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Jesus quotes here from Zechariah 13, which was a predictive prophecy where the Lord said that, hey, I'm going to give my associate, the shepherd, to die on behalf of the sins of the people. And when the shepherd is stricken, the sheep will scatter. And Jesus says that's exactly what's going to happen. The disciples are going to see Jesus in just a few moments carried away in handcuffs, and they're all going to go their separate ways. They're going to fall away. This word fall away literally means to stumble. But Mark uses it throughout the gospel to describe the actions of people who give themselves to sin or who even abandon the faith entirely. Jesus sees his disciples are going to make a terrible miscalculation. And when they see him in handcuffs, they're going to run rather than be publicly identified as one of his followers. And even though he knew it was temporary, he says, when I, ra- when I rise again, I'll meet you guys in Galilee. It's still certain. It looks them all in the eye. You all will fall away. You're all going to be scattered. You're all going to stumble. And nobody's immune. I mean, even Jesus' right-hand man, Peter, the rock, his boldest, most confident disciple is going to fall away. Peter says, look, I mean, Lord, yeah, all these guys, I could see it. It's potential in them. They could fall away, but I never will. Even if I have to die with you, I'll remain true to you. And Jesus just knows that's not the case. However committed Peter thinks he is, Jesus says, you're not going to deny me once or twice. You are going to deny me three times. This isn't a momentary lapse in judgment, is it? We're going to see Peter's denial in a few weeks. This isn't a momentary lapse of judgment. This isn't Peter misspeaking. This is a a decision he's made that he's going to deny Jesus. It is full-blown apostasy, turning his back on him. He even does it with a swear word. I swear to God, I don't know that man. What would make somebody who just a few weeks ago had said, we believe you're the Christ, the son of the living God, what would bring a person to turn their back on the master? It's obvious, they're weak. There's something at work within them battling and warring against what they want to do. When their faith is tested, Jesus says they're all going to fail. And to be honest with you, I put myself in their shoes a little bit. And I've tried to think about some of the tests I've faced in my life. I was going to talk to you a little bit about the first sermon I ever preached in my home church. Um, I was a college pastor at Cottage Hill Baptist Church in Mobile, and my senior pastor was going to be gone a Sunday in July, and so he asked me to preach on Sunday morning. And this is like nearly 12, 13 years ago. And I wasn't the accomplished orator 
I am today. I wasn't the budding Winston Churchill. No, I'm just kidding. And uh, I had been preaching every Wednesday night for our college worship service. So I was like 20 years old preaching to 100 other 20-year-olds. That's easy peasy. Sunday mornings at Cottage Hill are the big show. Now, there are 1,000 people in the auditorium. You're on the platform, and the, the platform is massive, and there's a tiny little island of a pulpit, and you're the guy right there behind it. Our, our stage lights are nothing compared to the lights that blared down on you on that platform. And I was so shook by that. Pastor sat down with me, tried to help me think about the sermon I was going to preach, and I struggled for weeks knowing what I was going to preach. And my anxiety ended up taking grip in my heart so much that I started dreaming about it. And I remember, still remember one dream where it was Sunday morning, I was going to preach, and I walked up the steps of the platform, got behind the pulpit, and opened up my Bible, and there were no notes to preach from. I felt totally exposed. What was worse is that I had procrastinated altogether and had never prepared a message. And there I was in front of a thousand eyeballs, 2,000, because everybody's got two, and uh, totally frozen, having to freestyle some kind of message from God. And I woke up from my dream nauseous and with cold sweats. As a test, a challenge God had placed in my life, something that really challenged my conviction that God had called me to preach. It helped me to refine my sense that what I was doing was not just trying to come up with a Bible study, but to declare God's word on his behalf. And then I faced other tests, and I'm sure you have too. You've been challenged to believe that God is who he says he is, despite the evidence that God will never leave you and forsake you, but you take a stock of your life. You're like, I don't see God here. You wonder, will I remain faithful? All hell's about to break loose in my life. I don't know how I'm going to make it. You think about situations where your public faith in Jesus has been put to the test, where it's been asked, you know, why are you the way you are? A guy asked me at jujitsu last week, where do you work? That's always a fun question to get asked, <laughs> especially when you're sweating all over a guy trying to choke him out. Oh, what do you do for a living? You don't know the tension in my own heart. In that moment, oh, if I tell him I'm a pastor, this is going to get weird. He's going to apologize for all the language he's been using. He's going to look at me different. He's never going to want to roll again. And what about you at work? When people find out you're a Christian, do you try to hide your identity with Christ, or do you let it be public? Now, these disciples, that's where it came down to for them. They knew that if they remained faithful to Jesus in this test, that the same kind of treatment he was experiencing, being handcuffed and taken to a trial and then crucified, that was likely to be the outcome of their public profession as well. And for them, that test was just too high, and they failed. But it's not just those kind of tests. It's also the temptations we face. And because of the weakness of the flesh, we falter when we're tempted. And we see this once they finally get into the garden, Jesus leaves the eight disciples on the outside, and he takes the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, on in with him. And he left them to pray. And his instructions were simple. He said in verse 34, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And when he returned after an hour, 
He found him sleeping. And so he rebuked him in verse 37. He said, Simon, are you asleep? Can you keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. I mean, here Jesus is at the darkest hour of his life, and his three disciples, the inner circle, the men that he had taken on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, and they'd seen his clothes become glowing white and him overshadowed with the glory cloud of God, and they'd seen Moses and Elijah with him, and they'd heard the voice out of the cloud. These are the guys who were in the room when Jesus raised up the little girl from the dead. There's right-hand men there to pray with him at his darkest hour, and they just absolutely buckle under the pressure. Guys, I asked you just to pray. All I asked you to do was pray. Couldn't you pray for one hour? Their sleep's even more startling when you consider that these are the three men who had all made a public promise to die with Jesus. Back in Mark 10, James and John come to Jesus and they say, Hey, Lord, in your kingdom, can we sit at your right hand and your left hand? And Jesus says, You guys don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with? And they say, yeah, we're able. And he says, well, you will drink the cup that I'm going to drink. And you will be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized with. But it's not my authority to give you the right hand and the left hand of the kingdom. I mean, James and John said, hey, we're willing to do whatever. Here is Jesus. The cup is in front of him. The cross is a few hours away. He's about to experience what he told him he was about to experience, and they're going to experience it too. But they can't even pray for an hour. Not to mention, Peter had just a few moments before swore up and down. He'd never deny Jesus, even if it meant he was going to have to die with him. And here they are, men who'd made public promises to go with Jesus to death, and they're sleeping. It's also startling when you consider that these guys could hear Jesus praying, they're within earshot of him. That's how we know what he's praying. Peter remembered, and he told Mark, who wrote it down in his gospel. They had a front row seat to understand the significance of the moment they were in. And they were too sleepy to see it. Isn't that amazing? Some people wonder, they, disciples say, their, Mark says down in verse 40 that their eyes were very heavy. And maybe you've been there where after a long, exhausting day or in their case, a long week, you don't have any strength left and you just collapse on your couch or in your bed. I don't think these guys are suffering from physical exhaustion. Some people have said, well, they just ate at the Passover meal and their tummies were full. You know how it gets after you got a good meal and you, you want to go take a nap. I don't think that's it. I think their sleepiness is a reflection of their spiritual insensitivity. They have no clue what God is doing through Jesus. He's told them that much. He's told them back in Mark 4 and Mark 7 and in Mark 8. He said, do you guys not understand? Are you, are you so blind that you can't see what God is doing? And here they prove it. Yeah, they are actually. They're so insensitive to God's work through Jesus they can sleep the darkest hour of Jesus' life. The Bible repeatedly warns us against excessive sleep, spiritual lethargy. The Proverbs say, How long will you lie down, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? 
a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and your poverty will come upon you like a vagabond and your need like an armed man. And it's dangerous not to work hard. In life, you don't work hard, bad stuff happens to you. How much more dangerous is it to be spiritually asleep? To be so unaware of what God is doing around us that we somehow snooze. We hit the button. God sometimes gives us an awareness that, hey, maybe this stuff going on in your life is spiritual. And we just hit the snooze button. Seven more minutes, Lord. I'll get up in seven more minutes. I'll get up in seven more minutes. And these men are so insensitive, so asleep to God's work in the world, they, they falter this temptation. Paul encourages the Thessalonians. He says, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, they're sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we're of the day, let us be sober. I mean, our flesh is so weak. We are, by nature, so insensitive to the things of God that our default is to sleep right through what God is trying to do in our lives. Or if we're not sleeping, we're distracted. We don't see it. We're totally unaware. And then temptation comes upon us, uh, like the proverb says, like an armed man runs up to us and tempts us, and we're totally caught off guard. We falter under the pressures. We don't see the battle waging all around us or in our own hearts. So look, this is us. Disciples give us a beautiful mirror image of how you and I would have acted if we'd been with Jesus that night. We all would have scattered. We all would have slept. But then Jesus shows us a better way. All right, quickly, let's see what Jesus does because his response to his moments of crisis teaches us the way that we can bear up under our darkest hour. First off, Jesus' response teaches us to stay wide awake to spiritual reality. And if our problem is we sleep, well, let's just take the spiritual equivalent of caffeine and stay wide awake to whatever it is that God's doing. I think we see Jesus' wakefulness in the description of his emotional state in verses 33 and 34. It says, He took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. I love the way these emotional words kind of heap up. Distressed, troubled, deeply grieved. These words are dis, uh, sort of surprising as descriptors of Jesus. And in the history of the church, many scholars have tried to explain them away. They don't see how it's possible for the Son of God to be distressed or troubled or deeply grieved. But I'm telling you, the man Christ Jesus, who was born of Mary and was raised in Nazareth, who entered into the brokenness and weakness of human life, knows exactly what it means to be distressed and troubled and deeply grieved. He's been to the depths of human experience. And he was wide awake to its significance. I mean, Jesus is anxious and sad over his impending death. Nobody wants to die. And Jesus doesn't, especially because he understands what his death will entail. Luke tells us that Jesus was so stressed out that his sweat was like drops of blood. And I think there are two reasons why this has to be the case. I don't think Jesus is dealing with the existential dread that you and I feel when we start to process the fact of our death. He's dealing with something deeper than that. 
See, he knows that his death is going to be physically agonizing. I mean, he'd seen crucifixions before. And so he knew that that was the way he was going to go. And so he could allow himself to consider what it was going to mean for his, his hands to be nailed to a cross and his feet to be nailed to the cross and to struggle for every breath until finally, as an act of mercy, he died. He knew what that was going to be. He'd seen it before dozens of times. And you and I do not know the means of death that we face or the moment of death. But Jesus saw it. He, he saw how it was going to play out, and he was agonizing over that. But then he also knew the spiritual darkness that was going to settle on him in his death. You see, he knew what Deuteronomy had said, that everybody who is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. And Paul says in Galatians 3 that Jesus became a curse for us by being hung on a tree. And he knew that it was God's will for him to die for sins. And so though he had made his whole life's aim to live in a way that pleased the Father, never deviating from his will, that in his death the Father was going to take the sins of the world and place them on his shoulders, that he was going to make him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And he knew that because he was going to carry the sins of the world, that he was going to experience a deep alienation from God. He's already feeling it. One commentator said, Jesus came to the garden to find heaven open before him and instead looked into the depths of hell. This isolation and agony is going to find its full fruit when from the cross in Mark 15, 34, he's going to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, Jesus' agony isn't simply over the physical fact of his death. It's over the significance that it will bear before God, that he's going to suffer as a substitute for sins, that he's going to experience the full cup of God's wrath poured out on him, that he is going to suffer alienation from the Father, and all that for our sins. It wasn't for me. It was for me in the garden. He prayed, not my will, but thine. Help me, Mike. He bore no tears for his own grief, but sweat drops of blood for mine. That's what Jesus was doing when he said, not my will, but your will be done. He was agonizing over the fact of his death on our behalf. To the tests of faith that you and I face are spiritual battles and nothing else. They're not disappointing circumstances. They're not struggles in relationships. They are battles between spiritual forces. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And if we're not wide awake to these realities, we're liable to sleep right through them. But Jesus saw the significance and because of that, he did the only thing he could do. He watched in prayer. And I love this four-part prayer in verse 36. He was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. See, Jesus' response to his hour of crisis teaches us to watch in prayer. Now, prayer was a fact of Jesus' life. If you've been with us through Mark's gospel at all, you know that he often retreated to quiet places by himself and prayed. And he often prayed through the night, just all night long. 
And so this instance is not all that different from his usual practice. Before every major crisis in his life, he prayed. This crisis was no different. And this prayer is really a model, and I think probably the most practical thing from this message. So if you haven't been filling in the blanks, you might want to fill in these four blanks. Because I think that the way Jesus prays is the model for us when we face our darkest hour and toughest trials. Number one, we see that in his prayer, Jesus relied on his relationship with the Father. He says, Abba, Father. This is totally unique. And we can't find any instance where a first century rabbi calls God Abba. Abba is what a young Jewish child would have called their dad. It's like the English Papa or Daddy. Right? It's a term of endearment. It communicates deep intimacy. The child who crawls up in their dad's lap and asks for whatever they want. Jesus had that. He loved the Father. He was one with the Father. Before his incarnation and birth, he was with God. And as he ascended to heaven, he sat at the right hand of the Father. I mean, he has this deep, unbreakable, intimate relationship with the Father. And in his crisis, he relies on that. Abba, Father. Paul says in Romans 8, that because you have the Spirit of God in you, you cry out, Abba, Father. That you possess the same kind of intimate relationship with God that Jesus had. Because you are in Christ, God is your Father. Doesn't he teach you to pray that way? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be my name. And so we face these trials and our flesh is weak and we say, I'm wide awake, I understand what this is, what do I do? You pray to the Father who loves you, who invites you into his presence, who offers to you mercy and grace in a time of need. The tempter is going to subvert your identity. He's going to tell you God doesn't care about you. You have no business calling on him. But according to Jesus, you're supposed to rely on the relationship you have with God, that you are in Christ and the Father is your Father. He knows what you need before you ask. Watch in prayer and resist temptation. Number two, Jesus rehearsed the character of the Father. All things are possible for you. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Jesus has made this statement twice in the Gospels. Once a leper came and bowed down before him, and he says, if you can, heal me. He said, what do you mean if I can? All things are possible for him who believes. A few weeks ago, we saw where Jesus taught his disciples that if they prayed for a mountain to be cast in the sea, it would be. Because all things are possible with God. This is something that Jesus knew deep in his core. All things were possible with God. And so he rehearsed the Father's character. We think about these things as his attributes. Who is God? He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. But our songs also teach us other attributes of God. Like he's faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. Lord, unto me. What about love? God is loving. He can't be anything other than loving. God is good. You're a good, good father. That's who you are. And when we are in these dark moments, our flesh, Satan, they, we try to get the better of us. Telling us, God doesn't care about you. God can't get you out of this mess. But 
when we rehearse the character of God, we're reminded that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. All things are possible for God. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. These things are true. This is the bedrock of our faith. Who are you, God? Because we know the attributes, the character of the Father, we can come to him with our requests. So Jesus requested the help of the Father. He just stated it plainly. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. You know, I, we think of Jesus as a stoic, that he's going to his death without any sort of agony, but this passage should drive that away. If possible, take this cup from me. Don't make me do this. How many times have you cried out to God with your requests and you felt guilty? Like, well, I really shouldn't be asking this. No, you should. You have not because you ask not. Jesus teaches us to bring every care before the Father, to state plainly and request his help. And you know the circumstances of your life. You know the situations you're in. Have you prayed about it? Jesus requested the help of the Father, and then he renewed his submission to the plan of the Father. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. I mean, Jesus stated it plainly, and then he found himself submitting once again to the Father's plan. I, you know, if God is good, and we know he is, then Jesus was able to rest in his goodness, even if he didn't have the cup removed. Now, I think for Jesus, this must have been some kind of deep resonance with all that he'd been preaching for these three years of his public ministry. I mean, he came out of the wilderness and announced the times fulfilled, the kingdom of God's at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Everywhere Jesus went, he was proclaiming the nearness of God's kingdom, that God was about to act on behalf of his people. And he knew that that action meant his death. He'd been predicting it. He told Simon Peter, um, when we get to Jerusalem, the Son of Man is going to be handed over to the religious leaders, and he's going to die, and he's going to be buried. On the third day, he's going to rise again. And he'd done that in chapter 8, in chapter 9, and in chapter 10. But Jesus also knew that this was the eternal plan of God, that from before time had even began, the Father had determined that he was going to send his Son to purchase for himself people from every nation, tribe, and language, that he was going to die in their place and shed his blood to redeem them from their sins. And in this moment of prayer, all of that came back to Jesus, and he renewed his submission to the Father's plan. I like what one commentator said. He said, prayer consists not in us changing God's mind, but in finding our own alignment with God's will. Listen, I don't know what you're facing. You may be in the darkest hour of your life. It may be that a giant thundercloud has opened up. You can't see the sun at all. It may be that you feel you're in a hole so deep you can't see the top. Maybe you're in a crisis of relationship. Maybe it feels like your marriage is slipping through your fingers or your kids are getting away from you. 
and you look back at the track record of your life, I think I've been through seasons like this before. And you know every time your faith's been tested, you've failed. You've fallen flat on your face. And every time you found yourself tempted to just walk away from it all, that's exactly what you've done. You've faltered, you've buckled under the pressure. And you look at the circumstances you're in right now and you think, here we go again. But listen, if you will take what Jesus does in this passage to heart, if you will stay wide awake to the spiritual reality around you, if you will learn to watch in prayer, to rely on your relationship with the Father, rehearse his character, to just simply request what you need from him and then renew yourself to obedience and submission, whatever the cost, I'm telling you, you can remain faithful through life's toughest storms. That's why he brought you here today, to remind you of who he is and how he wants to be with you through it. In fact, you know, Jesus prays for the cup to pass from him, and it doesn't. Next week, we're going to see his betrayer kiss him on the face. And we're going to see him at his trial. And we're going to see him hang on a cross. And when he died, he died not for his sins, but for your sins. For every time you've failed and every time you've given in. If you've never trusted in Jesus to save you and to accompany you through life, to be your Lord and to lead you and guide you. Today is the day you should do that. You're hopeless without him. I've been there. I know. It's going to make a mess of your life. But Jesus has died so that you could have a life that's abundant, filled with the best blessings of his kingdom, to know his love for you and to experience the deep fellowship with God that you were created to have. And today is the day that he's inviting you to place your trust and confidence in him, to come to him and give him your burdens, to offer over to him this circumstance you're in, and to find that his load is easy and his burden is light. If you've never trusted Christ, I would love to talk with you about what that means today. We're going to have some prayer partners in the back of the sanctuary. Our band's going to come and lead us in another song, and you could come to me or one of them, and we'd love to pray with you about it. Today, you need to recommit your life to Christ. We'd love to talk with you about that too. And if you want to make this your church home, we'd love to help you talk about that. But I know there are some people here who are in such a mess that you don't even feel like praying. You don't feel like you could do it. You can't get down on your face before the Father, and you can't offer up to him your requests. You're so broken and so lost. And if you just need somebody to put their arm around you or to take you by the hand and pray for you, we would love to do that. When our band plays, come to one of our prayer partners. Come to me. I'll be here at the front. And let us believe with you. The God who hears our prayers, hears your prayers, and he's ready to sustain you through your darkest hour. You pray with me.